Welcome to the seminar series of the Theology, Medicine, and Culture Initiative at Duke Divinity School. TMC seminars are a semi-monthly gathering of faculty, clinicians, students, trainees, and others interested in the intersection of theology, medicine, and culture. The seminars are presented and supported in collaboration with the Trent Center for Bioethics, Humanities, and History of Medicine. Kurt, I am honored to say, as a friend of mine and a psychiatrist who, for uh, decades, is that fair to say, has been in private practice in the <laughs> Northern Virginia Falls Church. I'm increasingly out of doing this for decades, too, um, in the uh, Falls Church, Virginia area. Uh, Dana Thompson is a uh, psychiatrist and graduate of Wright State University School of Medicine, uh, did a psychiatry residency at Temple. Um, and in addition to being a, a clinician, has uh, just been years thinking about how he engages in the work of psychiatry as a Christian. And that's led him not only into lots of interesting the theology, but it's also led him to uh, a very close uh, connection with interpersonal neurobiology and thinking about how can uh, uh, the neuroscience of relationships help us to better understand who we are as human beings and how we walk with each other. Uh, and Doug Thompson's the author of a couple of books, uh, and more on the way. Um, one is called Anatomy of the Soul, which is kind of an a account of, of how, as a Christian, he's thinking about um, interpersonal neurobiology. And the second, which I'd recommend to anyone in an educational setting, is called The Soul of Shame, about how shame operates in our lives as human beings and how it uh, can get in the way of creativity and joy. Um, and Dr. Thompson uh, and I have been in conversation for a number of years. I'm really, I learn things every time I'm with him, including these two days that he's here at Duke, and so it's really an honor uh, to welcome here to speak with us about uh, beauty and the renewal of all things. Thanks. Thanks. So thank you all for coming. Um, it's a delight to be with you. Um, I'm... Um, I, I, I said to Warren yesterday, like, I have to pinch myself. I, 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 15 years ago, you, you couldn't have paid me enough money to believe that at some point I'd be uh, invited to come speak to this group. Um, so I'm just really grateful to be here. Um, some things that would be helpful for you to know about me, in addition to what Warren's already said, is that um, um, I've been married for 33 years. Um, I have a daughter who's 29 who's uh, an associate pastor of a church uh, in uh, Roanoke, Virginia, and who also is a graduate of the Divinity School here, and a uh, son who's 26 and who works for the State Department at the UN in Manhattan. Um, and uh, I think the other thing I, I like to tell people, just to make sure that everybody, you know, full disclosure, I'm a professional sinner. Yeah, and I, I, because I think that anybody who does something for a really long time, and they're really good at it, um, you can call them a professional at this. <laughs> and um, I, I, I say that uh, because of the, the stuff that we're going to talk about today. I, I want to make sure that we, we know that I'm, I, I don't feel like I've accomplished these things. I'm practicing these things. Um, I think that we are, I think that we're practicing for heaven. I think that's what we're doing. And, um, you know, if, if you've read The Great Divorce, there is this sense in which uh, I think if we're not practicing for heaven, there's the chance that when it gets here, it may crush us. And so I'm, I'm, uh, I'm uh, hoping that the things that we talk about today um, will be helpful. Um, one thing I, I tell folks is that when we, um, uh, when we come to gatherings like this, uh, small, large seminars, whatever they happen to be, we're, we're kind of tacitly already primed to come hoping that, uh, that we'll acquire information. And we'll take that information, and we'll take that out into our real life that is separate from the life that we're living here in the room. Because you kind of you think you've left your real life, wherever it is that you're in academics or with family or whatever, you're coming here in the room to have this experience with information. And I want to invite you to consider that um, the most important question that we can be asking in the time that we have in our you know 75 minutes is, what does what what is God doing right here in the room? right now, to change who I am? That's the question that I want us to be, uh, that I want us to have at the very front of our prefrontal cortices. If you were to open your head, let me see it written right there. What is God doing in this room, in this space with me? Right. Um, 
So with that, uh, let me start. Uh, and and okay, I hope that these slides, we're, we're gonna go through a number of slides. We're gonna move through some of this stuff pretty quickly. Uh, and so some of it might feel like a little bit information overload, but I'm, I'm, I'm less, as, as, as I also tell folks, you know, when we, I, I do a lot of training with clinicians, and I tell them, look, at the end of this session, you're not gonna be any smarter, which is kind of disappointing. Like, why am I really spending money to listen to somebody talking about I'm gonna be smarter? My job is not to make you smarter. My job is to inspire you to go home and do the work. Um, and so, uh, even with that in mind, what I'm hoping for is for us to uh, be made more curious and more imaginative about what God is beginning to do in the room now, and what God then wants to do as a continuation project after we leave the room. The other thing I'm going to say is that the material that we're going to share, that I'm going to talk about, is some of it is new for me, in that uh, I've got a new book project that I'm working on, in which the notion of beauty is a, is a kind of a cornerstone piece of that. You might wonder what does beauty have to do with psychiatry. Uh, we're going to try to talk about that, what that has to do, and why that's such an important element for us to be curious about and paying attention to. So, with that in mind, we'll start with this. There we go. So I'm going to start with um, two premises. Now, you may agree or disagree with me on this, but I'm just going to tell you, this is where I'm beginning. I'm beginning that with the number one desire that we have as human beings is to be known. There is not a more powerful force in this room or in any gathering of human beings than, in, in my view, than the force uh, through which attachment is operating. We are human beings who long to be connected to other human beings. It's not good for man to be alone. And we don't take that verse in the second chapter of Genesis seriously enough. It's not good for man to be alone, and we play this out in all kinds of ways, every day, all day. To the degree that we are known is the single most important longing and desire that I have. Paul writes about this, there are those who believe that they know, who do not know as they ought, but the person who loves God is known by God. And he repeats this again in the fourth chapter of Galatians, this notion that we are people who are hungry to know, I like to know stuff, right? We come here because we want to know stuff. Because the more I know, the more power that I have, and the more power that I have, the less I actually need to worry about needing you. This is all about acquiring, this is all about the knowledge from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. This is part of that story. The more I know, the less I need to be vulnerable with you in order for me to flourish. So I want to suggest that being known by someone else, it's not just that somebody else knows things about you, they don't just know your vital statistics, but that they, you have the experience of being known by someone, especially in particular, the parts of you that you hate the most. There is no greater longing for us as human beings, I would posit that. Now we can argue this, but that, that's the part I'm Here's the second. I want to suggest that we are known, we long to be known, Every baby comes into the world looking for someone, looking for her. Right? Looking for him. We long for this in order for us then to go on and create. This also is what attachment looks like, right? Babies attach. If this happens in a healthy setting, babies attach and then they leave. They come and they go, they come and they go. And then at some point, they go far enough because they feel safe enough in order for them to go and adventure and even make mistakes and take risks. And this is what we are also made to do. But that risk-taking, adventure-taking thing that we do is all in the service of making things. Let us make mankind in our image. And if we're made in God's image, we are made to make things. You with me? So here's a question for you. Uh, what is the next good, beautiful thing that God wants to make with you? And I want to suggest that being curious about that question is important in a time and a day when shaming and condemnation and critique are pretty much uh, the only way that we know how to live with one another, inside or outside the church. Which is why I need to know more and more and more information so that I can be right, so that I can know where you're wrong, so that I can then be okay without actually having to be vulnerable but to create, as we're going to see, to create, ultimately, 
ultimately requires my also being vulnerable, as we'll also talk about. So these two things, to be known, so that would be one question we could ask you, by whom are you deeply known? If I asked you for them, could you give me the names of three people who, if I were to ask them, they could tell me everything there is to know about you? I don't mean just, again, your vital statistics. They could tell me what you feel, what you sense, what you image, what you think. They would tell me what your deepest shame is. They would tell me what your greatest longing is. They would tell me your failure. They would tell me your hopes, your dreams, the things that you're afraid of, the things that you lament. How well are you known? Now, I would suggest this. The degree to which we are known is directly related to how able and commissioned we are to create. This is true for all kinds of psychiatric things that we'll get to. But we have a problem, right? And the problem is that uh, despite the fact that we've been made to be known and made to create, uh, and we otherwise, like, we live in the real world. We live in the world like where we go home to today. We live in the world with our families and our people we work with and patients that we take care of and our parishioners that we care for as pastors. We are people of longing and that we are people of great desire. Uh, we'll get to this at the end of the time. We uh, do a lot of work in our practice with what we internally call confessional communities. We develop confessional communities. The outside world would otherwise know this as group therapy. But internally, we call this confessional communities as a way for people to be known and in order for them to be commissioned to create. And one of the things that we tell them repeatedly, we ask them the question, what is it that you want? What are you longing for? And of course, sooner or later, we're going to bump up against the reality that there are lots of things that I long for that are just not going to happen. And not happen. And it is in that place that we recognize our grief. And our grief, our distress over our longing not being met is often not something that we lament over. Instead, we do all kinds of things that end up leaving people coming into my office. Because we're not lamenting. We're just doing all kinds of other things that sends all of that interpersonal neurobiological stuff underground. And as a, you know, trying to be, and as a psychiatrist in Washington, this is kind of good news because I live there, I will never be out of a job. <laughs> we are people of great longing and lament, and what's important about that. So I'm going to suggest that into this space of longing and lament, um, beauty steps. Now, if you're in psychiatry, uh, if, you're, if you're trained in psychiatry, you're trained in mental health professions, um, it's uh, not likely that many of us uh, would see that like, one of the first things we want to introduce our patients to is the notion of beauty. No, the first thing that we're doing is we're doing a psychiatric evaluation. We're asking all kinds of questions. And the questions that we're asking are all built along the lines, as we will see, built along the lines of looking for the problem that is in the room. And we're going to be curious today about what would happen if we would actually be curious in a different way about the encounters that we're having with people? So, into this, uh, into this space, so many of you have heard this phrase, beauty will save the world, and this comes from Dostoevsky and his character who, who says this in, in the book The Idiot. And what's interesting about it is that the person that the character is referring to is a woman of ill repute. And yet he sees underneath all of this layer of brokenness. He sees great beauty and believes that her beauty is going to save the world. Um, in a time and space when all of our words and our rational explanations and our need to be right is kind of getting us what we get, I want to invite us to consider that God, who does not ever leave himself without a witness, is coming for us in a different way. That's not different from the beginning of the world, but different in terms of what we have ever been willing to pay attention to. What does beauty have to do with any of these other items? So um, I want us to consider, it's true, that the beauty will save the world. And underneath that, just a bit of a quick tutorial about what we mean by interpersonal neurobiology, what we mean by the mind, what we mean by integration, and so forth, and why those particular things that come from a neuroscience and attachment research standpoint help us get a better sense of what beauty is actually about. So interpersonal neurobiology is this, you know, this field of study that 
is looking at the convergence of lots of different disciplines, scientific disciplines, that all have a stake in understanding what the nature of the mind is. Lots of different disciplines that for many, many years didn't really talk to each other, didn't really have much conversation wherein which they could have some sense of where is our common ground in understanding what the mind is. You know, Wilson talks about this notion of conciliates, this point of convergence, this point of like where are the common threads of these different fields of study? Where, where do those common threads meet? Within the context of interpersonal biology, we talk about the notion of the mind. Quick definition of this, although we could take 30 minutes to unpack it, just from our, you know, in our language, we like to say that the mind is an embodied and relational process that emerges from within and between brains whose task it is to regulate the flow of energy and information. Pretty straightforward. Pretty, you have that. <laughs> Your report. So, right. So we, we often, when we think about the mind, as we said earlier this morning, um, you know, I, four years of medical school, four years of psychiatric training, not one lecture, not one course on what the mind is. Like this is risky, right? Because like. I mean, I'm so, look, I'm still willing to take your money to come to see me, but even if I don't, even if I can't tell you what the course was, because they didn't have one. But if we are paying attention to on this, this definition, I want to invite us to consider that the definition eventually wakes us up to beauty. And what I don't say here, but I eventually want to say, is that I believe that beauty eventually wakes us to justice. That you can't talk about beauty without talking eventually about justice. So the mind is an embodied process, right? It's by like it's not just, you know, it's not just my thoughts, not just my cognition, like it involves my entire body. It also involves relationships, right? If only about 20 to 30 percent of the neurons that come with a newborn into the world are ready to go as they are. They're going to take the next several years to interact with other human beings, the other 60 to 80 percent of those neurons to come online and fire together. They're going to have to have interactions with other people in order for that to happen properly. So I'm embodied, I'm relational, it's a process, it's constantly moving. It's an emergent process, it's not just static, it's becoming more and more and more. Those neurons that talk to other neurons talk to other neurons, and there's a certain kindling effect that strengthens this over and over again. And it is this regulatory process that regulates the flow of energy and information. And what we would say then about this is that like energy is like all the neurobiological and chemical energy, but it's also the energy that is taking place between you and me. Right? It's not just the stuff that's in my head or in my body. It's all the light waves and all the sound waves and all the stuff that's happening between you and me. Because I only actually, at the end of the day, I only ever know who I am because somehow you help me make sense of my story. And the only way that you do that is through your words and your body language and your all those kinds of things. I need you in order for me to figure out who I am. So the whole notion of self-identification about anything actually doesn't really hold up from a neuroscience standpoint. Because I need somebody else to be in the room in order for me to do that. It doesn't mean that I don't have agency and I don't have like say in this, but I need the presence of other people in order for me to do that. So that tells us a little bit about those, the mind integration, this notion that a mind is flourishing is a mind that acts like a symphony orchestra. I can sense, image, feel, think, do lots of different things. But like an orchestra that has many different parts to it, I need to know that each of these parts of my mind's activity are well-oiled. They're able to do, but that I'm actually connected to what I feel, what I think, what I image, what I sense. That I actually am connected to my body. That I'm actually connected to you. I'm actually aware of these things. Like the conductor who's aware of the different parts of the orchestra. I need to have each of these pieces be well differentiated, but I also need these pieces that are differentiated and doing their right thing to be connected to the other part of the orchestra. So I need, that my, I need my emotions to be connected to what I think. I need my emotions not to just run willy-nilly over and like take charge of my body and somehow I'm now just doing things whatever I want to do. But I'm angry about things, but despite the fact that I don't even know that I'm angry. I need to have both differentiation and linkage in order for me to be a flourishing integrated system. Does that make sense? Okay. Complexity is this space where the orchestra lives when it's at its best. When you're listening to Dvorak's 
symphony for a new world, the Ninth Symphony, when you're in the middle of that, you know that all the pieces are both well differentiated and well connected, and they're paying attention to the conductor. And for each of us, our personal conductor lives in the middle prefrontal cortex of our brain. It doesn't live in my brainstem. It doesn't live in my amygdala. It doesn't live in my, my hypothalamus. It primarily lives in my middle prefrontal cortex. But in order for my middle prefrontal cortex to do its job well, I need to go to conductor school. In order for that to function well, in order for my cingulate gyrus to fire in effective ways that brings other parts of the brain online together in a differentiated and linked way, I need to have the kind of training that I only get with other interpersonal human relationships that help my middle prefrontal cortex do what it's supposed to do. And in that way, I want to suggest that when you are rearing a child, you are, before anything else, or maybe in addition to everything else, you are doing nothing short of creating an artifact of beauty. And I want to guarantee you that you'll see a picture here. I want to guarantee it that when Michelangelo sculpts the Pietà, and he did it in this really short period of time while I was speaking, I can tell you that there was lots of mess in the room in the course of this time. I want to suggest that it is in our being willing to consider the world through a different lens, other than how is the world a problem? Rather, what is the next new beautiful thing that I want to make in this moment as a way for us to consider what God is actually doing in the world? Okay, the trouble with problems. Um, we can do this really quick because you all know what it's like. The trouble with problems, uh, besides they're being problematic, the trouble with problems is um, that we become, a, we, we become a people who are rather obsessed with identifying in the world what's wrong with the world. Now, this is not a bad thing. Like, I need to be able to know what's wrong with the world. But this sense of first looking at where the danger is comes from very primitive parts of my brain's activity. It comes from my brainstem, it comes from my amygdala, it comes from my hypothalamus, it comes from lower parts of my brain, lower parts of my right hemisphere in particular. I'm looking around the landscape all the time. Whether you know it or not, your brain is always checking things out to see where the danger is. Now, you've become accustomed to coming at least perhaps into this room often enough that when you come into this room, you're not worried about there being too much danger, so you don't think you're looking for danger, but I can assure you that's exactly what your brain is doing primarily all the time. If we're just talking about the parts of your brain that operate like reptiles and lower mammals. But unfortunately, this then becomes the way we tend to think about the world most of our day. Uh, most of the time, especially in medicine, we are trained to be looking for the problems. Now again, I'm not suggesting that this, that this in and of itself is an un, that this is a problematic thing. Like, yes, we need to be doing this. But I want to suggest that because we only do this, we also then are primed to behave this way in many of our relationships without being consciously aware that this is what we're doing. I mean, think about this. Think about... Um, uh, think about the marketing that goes into play. I mean, we, we're all familiar with this. The marketing goes into play. You watch a, a, an advertisement on television that essentially wants you to buy something because it is assuming and tacitly encourages you to consider that you have a problem. The problem is you don't have the right insurance company. The problem is you don't have the right kind of car. The problem is that you do have the right kind of car, it's just too old. The problem is, like, whatever it is, like, you have a problem. This is why you need the new thing. You're not saying like you just need to make, make you like because there is a tacit sense that there's a problem. In psychiatry, we have a thing called the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of what? No shrinks in the room except for you know, your cup of right? Of mental disorders. We don't have a diagnostic and statistical manual of human possibility. Heaven <laughs> so, there would be no money to be made in that, right? Because they send us all like to art school or something. This is what they like. And as you rightly said in your dissertation work, right? One way of considering the way the DSM was like arranged was for the convenience of certain things, of psychiatry and the research that we're doing and so forth. But it was a certain 
as a beast, and it's a map of what's wrong with us. Does that make sense? I'm not suggesting that being aware of problems is unnecessary or unhelpful. I just want to suggest that it limits our imagination. Um, to go just a little further, I, I, I want to say this, that uh, uh, 57, I've lived in America all my life. And uh, my, my suspicion is that uh, for many people, particularly in the evangelical world, of, of, of which I am now, but not just evangelicals and not just Protestants, our uh, sense of the gospel is that God has come to save us because we need to be saved. That be fair to say? But that's the lead, like that's the leading edge of the gospel. And I want to suggest to us that that's not the leading edge of the gospel. When Jesus comes to the gospel of Mark and says, "Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand." Yes, repent is the first word that he speaks. But why is that? Repent for something else. Because if you don't repent, beauty will overwhelm you. Is what I want to suggest. When he says the kingdom of heaven is here. It's like he's saying repent, because it's like saying buckle up. Because if you're not going to buckle up, things are going to happen and leave you behind. Repentance isn't about naming that there's something wrong with us that needs to be fixed. Repentance is about saying something so beautiful is coming that if you're not ready for it by turning around, it will consume you. Rather, I would suggest that the leading edge of the gospel is more akin to his first words of the gospel of John. You know what they are. You're theological. You're a theologian, right? In this room? You're biblical school. What are those first words of the gospel of John? What do you want? What are you looking for? John 1.38, right? John the Baptist's disciples are coming here, and Jesus turns around, seeing them, asks the question. What do you want? Can you imagine? Like thinking, like, yeah, I can imagine like the first conversation I'm gonna have with Jesus. And he sits up and says, So, what do you want? And you're like, aren't you supposed to tell me that like I'm like I am like I need to repent because I'm screwed up? You follow. Again, I'm gonna pause for just a moment and say there are lots of reasons why we understand tacitly the gospel to be this way. Lots of reasons. But Ian McGilchrist in his wonderful work, The Master of the I want to suggest if we were to read that, we would say that part of the reason that we do this is because even for a culture over the last 500 years, we have moved into this place where most of how we think of lots of things in the world, including the gospel, is all about seeing life as a problem to be solved. If I live out of my left hemisphere, I live with the world as an object to be seen, to be analyzed, to be deduced, to be fixed, but not one to be loved. As Lewis said, you can't both love something and analyze something at the same time. To love something means I must be with you. I must be in the room with you. One of the things that we tell therapists when they're doing work with patients, right? patients come in and we think that they're coming for all this information, which is all this information and these techniques, and they want us to do the right thing. But and of course, all this is important. Because when we're there and something happens and the patient isn't, we, we don't have the right answer. Like I'm just kind of like I'm worried. I'm worried that like I'm not smart enough. Like I, for years, I'm like the dullest pencil in the box. This is what I figure I am. And we worry that we don't have what it takes to fix the problem. And I tell I, I tell clinicians who are trying to look. Here's the important thing though. When patients come to see you, yes, it's true that they're coming for the thing you can offer to them. But the single most important thing that they're coming for is you. They're coming for your glance. They're coming for your tone of voice. They're coming for the part of you that says very deep into the parts of their brain. And this is going to take you in for information. I want you in the room. I want you in the room with all of your trouble. I want you in the room with all the parts about you that you hate the most. I want you in the room. And you can't make me leave. But if I'm only looking at this encounter 
as a problem to be solved. I automatically cut myself off from my right hemisphere's interaction, or right hemisphere's interaction, not just with the world, but with this person in this moment. And I limit my imagination. Does that make sense? Okay. All right. Quickly. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to skip that. I'm going to suggest this real quickly, that when we do that, when we live largely out of our left brain instead of our right, we give our experience and memory of trauma and the role that shame plays in it a large path in which to operate. And where shame operates in the memory of trauma creates disintegrated states. It separates my sensations from my images, from my feelings, from my thoughts. It makes me less likely to be creative. When we are actually in the business of doing everything we can to create larger states of integration at the location of the neurofrontal cortex in the brain. So, nine functions of the neurofrontal cortex. Read them quickly, memorize them, you're all graduate students. You know how to do this. I wasn't kidding. Did you get them? Okay. Well, let me just say, if you were to go back and go back. Okay. Just imagine this for a moment. Imagine this for a moment, right? Attuned communication. We're just going to walk through this really quickly. I have 10 more minutes. Do so I have to be done in 10 minutes? Take your time. Okay. Oh, okay. 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 I'm, I'm, now I'm getting anxious and my brainstem is overwhelming. <laughs> right brain, right brain, right, 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 right. brain. Should we all just take a moment to breathe? Like, <laughs> Can I have a hug? I just. <laughs> Imagine for a moment. Uh, if you took these nine functions in the overall cortex, and every day before you left the house, you just allowed your imagination to work through what it would be like for you to be in this place. So the first thing you're going to be, you're going to be in a state of attuned communication. I'm going to attune to people by communication. I'm not just going to talk out of my head. Before I open my yap, I want to be attuned personal to be What does that mean? I'm going to have to be aware of what they are sensing, image and feeling. I'm going to have to be aware of their nonverbal cues. I'm going to have to be aware of their entire person. I'm going to have to be mindful of that. So I want to be a person of attuned communication, which means that one of the first things I'm going to have to do is be a person in which my fear is being modulated. Because one of the first things, one of the most primitive things through my amygdala, my brainstem, that gets off what makes me unable to attune my communication is I become afraid. Very primitive. Right? This is reptilian brain stuff. So I'm going to be aware, I'm going to work at being aware of when I'm afraid. I'm going to just modulate that. And then I'm going to let that move to helping me regulate my body because you speak with your body far more powerfully than you do with your language. And so I can say I love you while I'm doing things that make you convinced to love nothing of the sort. I'm going to regulate my body. And then I'm going to be balanced in my emotion. What does that mean? I'm going to be able to be angry and sin not. To be balanced in your emotion does not mean that I only feel things that are pleasant and right, acceptable to people around me. No, it means that every single emotional thing that I could experience, everything from rage to kindness, from joy to despair, even shame, I'm going to be able to include these. I'm going to allow all of these to be part of of a creative process that turns me into a person of greater love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, challenge, self-control, against which nobody will be able to figure out because there isn't a law for this. And then, if I'm balancing my emotion, it means that my responses can be flexible. Anybody here parents of children? Right, yeah, and like, who else? but them to practice our response flexibility, right? <laughs> I mean, they don't deserve response flexibility. You know what I mean. So, like, what does it mean for me to be a person 
whose responses are going to be flexible. Right? I'm going to respond one way to one person in 20 minutes, I'm going to respond differently to another person because I'm doing all these other things. And then that, if I'm responding flexibly, it creates enough space for me to be empathic with someone else. I can't be empathic with you if I'm just acting automatically out of my brain set. But if I am going to have all these things that I'm doing, I'm going to need more space to be empathic with you, the more I practice this, the more capable I am of becoming intuitive about situations. Whereas, very much, I don't have to like think over five minutes, I just get things. From that comes insight. I actually develop things. And, you know, the Bible might call it revelation. Have a revelation. We even say, well, those revelations often come because of all this other work that's happening. This last word that I have there is morality. One of the things that we uh, point out is that the first eight of these all develop primarily in the context of the development of a secure attachment relationship. These are not things that just develop because you have a pulse. They don't come online just because you can breathe. They come online because you have a relationship with another human being who provides the development of a secure attachment for you. And if you don't have it, you don't get this. Now, morality is something that still shows up in the middle prefrontal cortex. There just hasn't been as much data that's been accumulated yet in terms of how we connect that to secure attachment. But it wouldn't be hard to like, make that jump. So you can see where we're going. This is what we want to be like. I want to be all these things. I'm going to take 10 minutes to reflect on this and become this every morning before I walk out of my front door. But I want to assure you that I can't do this just by meditating. I can only do this if I am myself in vulnerable community where in which the very things that I long to become are being given to me as well. These things are being offered to me. Somebody is attuning to me. In an, in like, they're communicating with me in an attuned fashion. And so forth and so on. Somebody else is being empathic with me. And so forth. We like to say in our business that the brain operates bottom to top and right to left. Spinal cord, the brain stem, amygdala, up into the right hemisphere, back down through and up to the thalamus and the hypothalamus, and we move then from the right hemisphere to the left hemisphere where we make sense of what we sense. Now this is an overly simplistic way of talking about how the brain works. But fundamentally, it is what the brain is doing 24 7 just cycling back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. But what we have done in our world is that we are trying to shoehorn things from the left side of the brain into the right side of the brain without actually paying attention to the way the neurophysiology operates. And consequently, as McGilchrist points out, we live in this world of left brain operational expectations when our trouble is often that we don't have much contact with our right answers. Now we're just going to walk through Psalm 27, verse 4. Get through this. Some of us are familiar with this. I'm just going to walk through this, and I'm going to invite us to consider that this is a model that brings together interpersonal neurobiology, the biblical narrative, and what it means for us to invite beauty to come to the stage as a way to speak to our longing moment. One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek Him or to inquire of Him in His temple. I'm just going to walk through this real quick. One thing I've asked, attention and perseverance. Nothing happens in the world of beauty or endurance that does not require attention and perseverance. Neuroplastic change, in order for it to become permanent, is largely about practice, 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 practice in the context of community, which makes it that much more viable. One thing that I will seek, one thing I've asked, we have to decide what is the life that I want, recognizing that if I want that life, it's going to require practice in the context of community. To dwell. Who here knows the work of Mark Rothko? So a few years ago, um, I was introduced to Rothko's work. Uh, can you see this? 
Is this, this helpful to just turn lights on a little bit? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the slides don't do these things justice, but I mean, if you can see this. You know, Rothko was known for these large canvases where it appears that they're just color. And of course, there is just color. And we would like to know, well, what, what is this about? How does it make sense? And the first time I had any encounter with Rothko's work, uh, my friend and I went to the National Gallery and we sat in the Rothko room. And, you know, for 20 minutes, you're looking at this painting and you're wondering, like, what the heck? <laughs> like, and nobody, of course, wants to admit this, but this is what <laughs> Right? What the heck? I'm, I'm sitting here, like, I'm, talking, I'm looking at this, like, piece of paint that's, like, hanging on. And then I had the strangest two things happen. The first thing, and I'm even color deficient, right? So this is not helping. I'm, 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 you know. uh, I began to recognize uh, that there was not just one color in free band, but there were multiple layers of color. But here's the thing, you can't see that immediately. It requires one to dwell. It requires time. It requires one to be with, not just the painting, but with one another. Because what I'm going to invite us to consider is that to dwell in the house of the Lord, for the one who wrote this psalm is to dwell in tabernacle. David didn't even have the temple yet. That came later in Solomon. And in John 2, Jesus comes along and says, the temple where you think you want to come and dwell, the temple, tear the temple down, I'll rebuild it in three days. The temple, of course, is Jesus' own personhood. But then we move on to Pentecost, right? And the Holy Spirit comes and, like, messes up everybody's math. And then we get to the 12th chapter of Corinthians where Paul says, and you are the body of Christ. That we are the temple. And I want to suggest to us that dwelling needs for us to be in deeply connected community with one another. And it takes time to see the color. But I also want to invite you to consider this. That dwelling with artifacts and objects of beauty enables us to be more imaginative about considering that to dwell with others is also to see it as objects of beauty. Moreover, it enables us to begin to practice imagining that we are objects of beauty. We're not just beautiful. It's not an adjective. It's a noun. You are living, breathing, pulsating objects of beauty that Jesus wants to use to transform the world, the room, the conversation that you're in the middle of at any given time. Gaze. Hang on. Perhaps some of you have been in the presence of this. I've known people who've said they approached this at St. Peter's and all they could do was weep. What is it like for us to gaze upon this? I remember seeing this for the first time. You just feel like your knees are going to fall. And then you wonder, what is it like for Mary to gaze at her boy? How long does she gaze? Who is in our life to whom we give permission to gaze? gaze long enough, we're going to suffer. An Italian sculptor, British Shelley, in the 1500s, you know, most of our artwork with the crucifix is incomplete, right? It has Jesus covered. Because, and, and I, you know, this is not an advocacy for, like, changing all. I'm simply saying that the crucifixion, when seen through the lens of Easter, represents the notion that there's nothing more beautiful than the crucified world. But for us to get our imaginations around that would require us to imagine that Jesus gazing at us and seeing us in this same posture, that he would also see nothing more beautiful than us in our brokenness. 
not something that my logical left brain is going to like do much with, because all I see is a problem that needs to be fixed. Who are the people in our life who are able to, to whom we dwell, to whom we give the option to gaze, who will be the agents of atonement? Talked a little bit about this yesterday. In Ezekiel 16, the prophet goes on and on about how Israel is poured herself. And then says, but you must bear your disgrace. You must bear this. And of course, as a modern-day evangelical, I mean, like, I thought Jesus was supposed to bear all that stuff. And what we come to find out is when we look at John 21 and Jesus coming to Peter, there is a sense in which Jesus asks him a third time for a whole no, you know, all kinds of reasons. But I would be curious to like, but one of those reasons is really about Jesus knows that Peter in that moment knows that he didn't love him and perhaps doesn't love him now. Because if I loved you the way that I say that I loved you, I wouldn't have thrown you under the bus six weeks ago. And Jesus is not going to leave any stone of shame unturned. He's coming for Peter. And he's coming for Peter publicly in order for Peter to know from Jesus that nothing stands in place between you and me. We don't have to go have a private conversation about this. Like, I'm not afraid of your mistakes. This whole notion of being in the presence of another such that we dwell in order to gaze is what atonement stands on. This sense of I will be at one with you. And in so doing, God will take that moment, you seeing me seeing you, being the body of Jesus, and everything changes. And all we see is beauty. But not if I'm mostly functioning like I'm afraid. And then we inquire or we seek. Well, you may know the work of Mako Jamura and this form of work that he does uh, called Nyonga, and it is a form of mineral painting. And one of the things about this is that all this color that you see at one point was like rock. And the reason it's able to become what it is is because somebody has hand pulverized all of it to a powder that is fine as talc. And I want to suggest to us that the parts of us that feel most like having been pulverized are the very things that Jesus is in business of using of making this. This is what we are becoming. This is who we are. And we are made out of the very things we hate most. This is an idea that I'm talking about. Last thing, we uh, talk about confessional communities, beauty of transformation. In our in our practice, we uh, we work to create these confessional communities outside. Folks would see this as group therapy. But we talk about being confessional communities because we really believe that it's in this space where we ask the question, "What do you want? What is your longing? What is your grief?" We want you to know that we're not leaving the room. Even the thing that you long for that you may never get, we're going to lament with you in this space. Rather than just leave this to go under. We're not leaving your shame alone. We're not going to allow you to have the space to operate in your brain, in your heart, in your body, or between us. We want you to be with us and us with you in order for you to be commissioned to do the next thing that God wants to create with you. Implications for this. Real quickly, I think we become outposts of goodness and beauty and thinking of it in these terms. That the gospel is about our dwelling, gazing, inquiring, as we become outposts of goodness and beauty. This is Matthew 5, 4, and 16. You're illuminated. You're absolutely illuminated. Jesus walks in the room and sees you like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I get to be your God. Earn secure attachment. Everyone who thirsts, you come to me, 
and out of you will flow rivers of living water. Your earned secure attachment in the context of a community that is working with your vulnerability to create beauty, that beauty becomes living water for other people. Integration. We become whole, even as our Father in Heaven is also whole. And by this, this is where we get to issues of justice, right? Because we say, like, it's not just about, you know, like, look, I'm a 57-year-old white dude in America, right? Like, I, like, nobody else in the room has more power than I do. I get it. The question is, like, what do I do with that? What do we do about males and females? What do we do about Asians and African-Americans, you know, and, and Latinos and all of these different things, right? Where the question is not just, like, do I feel good? The question is, are we doing what Mako's painting suggests? Are we becoming this, not just for myself, but how are we as the body of Jesus becoming artifacts of beauty? Ephesians 2.10, right? For you are God's workmanship, but the word poeta that he uses can also be used as the word, it's the word from which we get the word poetry. You are God's poem. And we as a community are furthermore God's poem. This is the last slide. Um, uh, you may be aware of this, you're familiar with this, called Kintsugi. Uh, it's from a long ago ancient Japanese story about an ancient tea bowl involving a warlord. Somebody got in trouble because they broke his favorite tea bowl. Things were not going well for somebody at the moment. <laughs> uh, warlords did bad things to people back then. But one of the ancient tea masters spoke to the warlord on this young man's behalf and said, let me have a crack at this. He takes it, he repairs it. And what he brought to the warlord was his favorite tea bowl in which all the fracture lines have been covered with gold. Kintsugi has now become an art form in which it's not the same as it was before. In fact, it's even more beautiful. It is the very fracture lines where we are most vulnerable, or where we feel most weak, most not okay. It is in those very places where the God of creation has come to redeem and to recreate, making all things new. And I want to suggest to us, again, this is who we are becoming. What it means to practice becoming a Christian, this is what we're becoming. But it is crucially important for this to be the thing that we are imagining in order for us to become that. So here's the last question, and I'm done. You can turn the lights up. Um, how, on a regular basis, are you putting yourself in the path of oncoming beauty? What are you doing to practice it? What are you doing to imagine it? I think I'll stop with that. You've been very kind. Thanks.